I don't know. I think you hit it all, dude. You did a really great job here. Yeah, well, thanks. I feel like I kind of rushed through it. Huh. I see, <laughs> cool. I see what you did there. <laughs> you, that, that's actually a candidate for the class. That's a good one. Season three, it's already dad jokes. <laughs> Hey, Prague fans. Welcome to another episode of the Ultimate Prague Podcast Project. It is season three. Great rejoicing. My name is Tony, and as always, I'm joined by Lee. Craig. We are three friends and Prague aficionados here to talk about the history and the craft of progressive music while sprinkling in our always unvarnished opinions of the music and the personalities that make this genre so great. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at UP3Show, as well as on our homepage at UP3Show.com. That's a new one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you'd like to reach out to us directly, you can contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. If you chant, you chant. (laughs) (laughs) Our new theme songs would just be like Gregorian chants. Yeah. (laughs) But do it in seven, eight. If you just can't get enough of the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on our homepage at up3show.podbean.com or wherever it is that you get our podcast. Wait, don't we have a different homepage? We do have a homepage at up3show.com, but the podcast is still at up3show.podbean.com. For the listeners, it's all just go and we have all the links. We also have a link tree. It's on our Twitter. It's awesome. We try and make things simple for you guys. All of these things make sure that you never miss an episode and helps other prog fans find the show. Guys, it has been a summer. It is season three, episode one. Jesus. I'm going to start with you, Lee. What have you been up to over the summer, man? Took a little time off and went up to Wyoming and did some fly fishing. Had a great time. Sounds awesome. Didn't catch a lot of fish, but caught some big fish. Got into some 21-inch rainbows. Nice. Yeah, that was a lot of fun, and I've been back here since, working in the studio a little bit. Working on music, podcast stuff, what? Working on podcast stuff and doing a little bit of writing on a new song, so, yep. That's pretty awesome. How about you, Craig? I've been playing a bunch of music, and I literally just got off an airplane. Uh, I was in New York for the past 12 days. Both my daughters live in New York State. One lives upstate, one lives in the city. Mm Mm-hmm. I spent some time with them. I went to see the Broadway production of Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. And uh, it was great. Nice. <laughs> the music was great. Special effects were great. Really funny. Way overpriced drinks. But it was cool. It was, and it was great to see my kids. Good. That's awesome. I also spent time in New York over the summer. There was a period in the middle of uh, July where I went left coast to right coast. So I was in L.A. for a little while doing some stuff and then was in New York for a little while. I follow the motorsport Formula E, and I had an opportunity to go out there for a race. And I'm bicycling on city bike around New York City, and at a red light, and some notification comes up and says, "Did you know that Jordan Rudis is going to have a show tonight at City Winery?" And I was like, "No, I didn't know that. Thank you for letting me know. I'm going to go." And it was an amazing show. It reminded me a lot of that album, uh, "A Night with Jordan Rudis and John Petrucci." <laughs> it felt that. very much like that. Petrucci, incidentally, was in the audience at that show. 
Doug Helvering from the Daily Doug was in that audience at that show. It was really cool. And then I met this guy named Mike. And he's got this band. We started talking about touring and what the prog seems like in New York City. And we eventually decided that we're going to have him on the show in a few months. Very cool. It was pretty awesome. You're networking. Always networking, always working, always trying to do for the show. Right. I know. Such a slog. You give and give and give. This show just takes everything from me. Now I know why Portnoy left Dream Theater. That's right. (laughs) So what have you guys been listening to over the summer? Listening to the new Porcupine Tree, Closer Continuation. And what do you think of that? The reviews have been very polarized, one or the other. It's great. I really like this album. Gavin Harrison is really standout on this. Mm -hmm. He's got writing credits on a number of songs. I just think his drumming is outstanding on this. Nice. I am liking it quite a bit. And the other one is the new Derek Sherinian, Vortex. Also a great album in a very different vein. It's very prog jazz, even leaning into some prog metal. Cool. What about you, Craig? I've been playing a bunch of jazz with a bass player who's a buddy of mine. Shout out to James. And as a result, uh, I've been listening to a lot of Jocko Pastorius. Ah. He guested on a ton of stuff in the 70s, besides just Weather Report. There's one song, it's him, Pat Metheny, Jody Mitchell is singing. I think it's Goodbye Pork Pie Hat. It's just this great arrangement. Oh, wow. If you just start searching for Jocko Pastorius on YouTube, just a ton of stuff is going to come up. Mm. He's such a good bass player. My God. I don't know if this is true, but I know he was one of the first to use a fretless electric bass. Mm. He may be the guy who invented it. Interesting. I was reading some things where they suggest that he did that. But totally unique sound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The way he played, the emotion he got out of it, and just huge loss, but hugely respected in the community at the time and up till now. Yeah. For me, um, I'm still in this like weirdly pseudo metal phase um so i have been going back and listening to a lot of older albums that maybe i listened to once or twice didn't do the full three or five listen rule so one of those is oceans of slumber um mostly because their lead singer Kami gilbert she had a guest spot on the most recent arion album transitus and i'm really trying to find a way to hook into that album because I'm still a diehard Arion fan, but I, that album is just, it's a big block. It feels very much like the astonishing by DT to me. I can't get past some of the things that I don't like about it. So oceans of slumber really, as I went off on that left turn, I'm really, really enjoying and they've got a much more extensive back catalog than I even realized. And I'm really trying to go explore that. Yep. So as we normally do next, Leek, what do you have for news and new releases for us as we go into the the fall here? Yeah, coming out of the summer, we uh, had a number of releases. Again, Porcupine Tree, Closer Continuation. That was June 4th. New Tangent, Songs from the Hard Shoulder. That released June 26th. And I have downloaded it, but I haven't started listening yet. New Derek Sherinian, Vortex, again, July 1st. Mm Mm-hmm. And then John Mitchell with his solo project, Lonely Robot, Mm -hmm. they just released their new album, A Model Life, Mm -hmm. and that was last Friday, August 26th. And again, I have downloaded that, but haven't started listening yet. In the coming soon category, Sam Vallon, 
the guitarist for Caligula's Horse. He is uh, releasing a solo single called Flicker on September 8th. And I'm really looking forward to that because I think he's a fantastic guitarist. There is new Threshold coming out November 18th, an album called Dividing Lines. And they have released a couple of sample clips, King of Nothing and Silence. And while Damien Wilson is no longer there, I was really impressed with Glenn Morgan's vocals. Mm-hmm. And then finally, new Devin Townsend. It's a new year, so Devin Townsend must be doing an album. <laughs> this has got to be like his 19th studio album. Yeah. Lightwork, which will be out October 28th. And he has released a new clip called Moon People. That just came out today, as a matter of fact, with Diego Tejeda on keys. Yeah. I know that Kairos has an album in post-production because they've been posting about it. And I know Haken has a new album in post-production, but neither one of those have a date yet. So, right. Catatonia has announced they will be touring North America this fall. And I am totally psyched for that. And they will have the ocean as their backup band. So November 22nd in Denver Mm -hmm. and John Petrucci added a couple of dates, including a November 10th date for Denver. So I'm going to go see that. And that's what I got. All right. That's pretty awesome. Thank you, Lee. Craig, as we get into season three here, let's do another unheard of. Should we talk about an unheard of band? Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> nice segue. <laughs> I, I tried the yes and you. But it was let's don't do that and let's pretend we did. I didn't want you to find out we cut your segment this my way. My bookshelves but... are empty and all my shit's in a box outside of my office right now. <laughs> um, unheard of. So... <laughs> I've been fired from my own podcast. That's unheard of. (laughs) There's the segue you're looking for. Tony, you pointed out that there's this band that is unheard of, and they're called Moon Safari. They are heard of among many. They are a uh, Swedish prog band. They've been around since 2003. And the way they got started was they all just decided to record an EP of kind of proggy music. They reached out to Thomas Bowden, who is of the Flower Kings, and he mixed and engineered it. And the rest is history. Their uh, style is really, for the most part, kind of traditional, proggy, long songs, shifting time signatures. So here's clip one, a nice basic prog song. It's the beginning of a song called We Spin the World. That's very lush. Some nice, mm-hmm. lush, symphonic prog. Not too shabby, right? So the current members of the band, they're all Swedish, so I'm going to get their names Go all ahead, wrong. butcher it. Go for Peter it. Peter Sandstrom, Johan Westerlund, Simon Ackeson, Pontus Ackeson, Sebastian Ackeson. I don't know if they're related or not. Seems like they might be, but that so. also might be the Swedish equivalent of Smith. Okay. And Michael Israelson. 2005, their first album was Doorway to Summer. 2008, Blumlude. Hmm? <laughs> 2010, Lovers. Okay, End. we've lost both of our Swedish listeners. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to Sweden, the whole country, even if you don't listen to the show. I'm sorry. Uh, and so am I. 
a curling joke almost came out of my mouth, but I thought better of it. And oh, Lord. Let's move on. In 2013, uh, Tony, you want to take a crack at this uh, title? Him Lebakken. Very nice. And they uh, also uh, produced an EP called Lover's End Part 3 Shelf Tea Serenade, which sounds like an Ikea end table. Oh, my God. <laughs> I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. A little punch drunk. Look, yeah. the show is cheap, but you have to assemble it yourself. <laughs> yeah, right. We give you all the, all the parts. Uh, a couple live albums, uh, The Gettysburg Address and Live in Mexico. And I thought it was funny. The Gettysburg Address yeah. was recorded in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, of all places, yeah. which is crazy. Uh, these guys have really toured all over the world. Nice. Their sound is kind of a 60s rock and pop sensibility. Mm-hmm. In addition to progressive rock, they sound a little like the Beatles at times. They have a lot of influence of yes and transatlantic. And one that you wouldn't expect is the Beach Boys. And I say that because not only do they say it in their press material, but they have a lot of really sophisticated harmonies. Clip two is an acapella number. It's called Constant Bloom. This is a version that's recorded live. They opened up for yes at one time. This was around the time Chris Squire passed away and it was in his honor. We promise you God has made a breeze, yet we're lost in this tune, just men of the moon, blessing for a world of constant blue. Wow. That's awesome. I mentioned the fact that their songs are really proggy, a lot of really long ones. A lot of them have bits like that in it, and it's really cool. There's some interesting chords in there. Oh, absolutely. And it it really does sound very Beach Boys, and I mean that with the utmost respect. The band's been around for a number of years, haven't done a lot of new music, but they still do perform live. They were on the last two Cruise to the Edges, which I didn't even know. Those are the two we didn't go on. The last one we went on was three ago. And if you look on the Facebook Cruise to the Edge page, I did a little searching around there. They absolutely have a following. Nice. There are a lot of people where it was so great to see them change my life, the whole nine yards. And the more I listen to them, the more I can imagine being really moved to see them live in an environment like the Cruise. I have one more clip that is heavier because I love a good progressive rock guitar song. So let's listen to clip three, which is called Too Young to Say Goodbye. Very camel feeling. Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. I love these guys. I had a really good time learning about them and researching them, and I've been converted. Awesome. What's interesting about these guys is not a whole lot of social media. They've got a lot of music on YouTube, a lot of stuff on Bandcamp. You can connect with them on Instagram. Their website gives you a 404 error. (laughs) Their Facebook and Twitter doesn't appear to be terribly active. But like I say, they absolutely have a following. If you like Flower Kings, if you like Transatlantic, some of their stuff sounds a lot like old Yes. Even Beach Boys, sophisticated harmonies, cool guitar, good songwriting. You'll love these guys. So check them out. Moon Safari. Give them a listen. Very cool. 
Thank you very much, Craig. You betcha. And without further ado, let's go talk about Rush. Rush has been one of my favorite bands for years and years. I have seen them live, God, I don't know, I'm going to guess at least 20 times. I have long considered them to be one of the powerhouses in Prague. But I think it's also a kind of an unusual story because it's largely driven by the fan base. And it was not an easy climb for them. They have fought and scraped to get where they are. They form in Toronto, Canada in 1968. Alex Lifeson and Getty Lee were childhood friends and 15 years old when they started the band. Mm. And one of the things that helps them in their formative years is around the time they're turning 18 is also when Canada dropped the legal drinking age from 21 to 18. That's hilarious. And overnight created this demand in the bars by a very, very young crowd for more nightlife. And Rush was really able to capitalize on that and get a lot of gigs playing in the Toronto area and the bars. They find this local manager, Ray Daniels, who takes them on. Mm -hmm. They shop around for a record deal, don't get one. So they scrape the money together to do their own first album, which comes out in 1974, the eponymous album Rush. That's the song Working Man from the first album by Rush, which comes out in 1974. It is a pretty much blues rock album. There is no prog at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, it caught on in a radio station in Cincinnati, Ohio. When they caught on playing that first album, people called into the radio station saying, oh, Led Zeppelin has a new album out. (laughs) That's hilarious. Mm -hmm. I sort of set this album off to the side because I don't think it's very representative of their sound and the rest of their discography. It's self-produced, and it has John Rutsey on drums. It's the only album without Neil Peart on drums. And it's just straight rock blues. There's no prog. And what was it that brought you to Rush? I got into Rush at Fly By Night, which is the second album. Mm -hmm. With a famous title track. Yeah, and I just found that the in-your-face quality to Rush was really, really attractive to me. What does that mean to you? Yeah, because I don't find Rush to sound in your face. And compare it to other music of the time. Okay. Well, this is a composite of the next three albums.
juicy. It is juicy. That's Anthem off of Fly By Night, Bastille Day from Caress of Steel, and part of 2112. I think the early Rush sound is very much in your face for two big reasons. The first is Getty Lee's vocal range is mm-hmm. extremely high. Yep. That first song we listened to, Anthem, from Fly By Night, the melody is centered around B3 on a MIDI keyboard and goes as high as an E4. That is really high for a first tenor. Mm-hmm. And I think right out of the gate, for a lot of people, Getty's early voice is very polarizing. Even he said so. Mm-hmm. This is a quote from Getty Lee from his Ultimate Guitar interview from 2016. Rush is definitely a polarizing band. I think that's partially my voice, which is quite high and kind of unusual. People either dig it or they don't. And the kind of music that we make is complicated and can be quite jarring in terms of time changes and the aggressive nature of it. You have to have a willingness to invest some time and energy into trying to understand it. Mm -hmm. That's fair. I I agree with that completely. The in-your-face quality of these first couple of albums in particular to me feels more like punk than anything else. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just very interested in like you calling it in your face in that way, because that's not typically what people would think of Rush. Well, the style of Rush will change pretty dramatically, as we'll see. But I think these early albums, yeah, I think they are very much aggressive and in your face with Geddy Lee's vocal range and the power trio styling of the early albums. Mm-hmm. I can understand how his voice is polarizing. It is super high. I agree that it's is unusual. Yeah. You know, like John Anderson, you know, both of them, they get away with it. Yeah. And uh, it's the right voice for the band. They do get away with it. But John Anderson, those are very soft lines, very soft lyrics. Absolutely. De- very different quality. Yeah. But they're both in the same range. They're both super high. I'm interested in why you use the words get away with it, because at the same period of time, Judas Priest is extremely popular. And Rob Halford's range is right up there, probably even higher than Getty's. Well, the reason I agree with Get Away With It is because Rush wanted to be a prog band from the second album on. They were not trying to be a straight heavy metal band like Judas Priest. I think it was hard to fit into what the rest of prog was doing at the time. Genesis Trick of the Tail, Zappa, Zoodle Lures, Camel Moon Madness, Gentle Giant Interview, Kansas Left Overture, albums like that. At that time, prog... It's a very dense sound. It comes out of that classical background that we talked about. A power trio doing prog, I think a lot of people really ended up scratching their heads. Yeah. Like, where does this fit? Mm-hmm. Power trio is a very unique sound because especially in choruses and solos, mm-hmm. it is really hard to fill the middle range. Fill the spectrum. Yeah. Remember when we interviewed Jeff Vicente at the end of season one? He talked about when he does a mix, for one of the first things he thinks about is, where does everything sit in the space? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of the time in a song that power trios are leaving that middle space wide open. And I think that's also polarizing. People either like that or they don't. There sort of isn't a middle ground. So you got to have a bass player that is really good on being able to hit low notes, but still play high up on the neck to do a little filling. Mm-hmm. Like John Entwistle is really good at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't care what people say. The Who, to me, is a power trio. They just have oh, four yeah. people. Mm-hmm. They just have. They have a vocalist who doesn't play an instrument. Yeah, Jack Bruce with Cream, even John Paul Jones with Led Zeppelin. You know, another four-man power trio. And and for people of my generation, it was Nirvana. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. 
So I think that's the two big reasons why Rush doesn't catch on immediately as a prog act is Getty's voice range and the power tree and nature of it. And I think that haunts this band for quite a long time hmm. until they really build up a fan base through touring. Yeah, I was a prog nerd at that time, and I knew 2112 had come out, and I disregarded it. I mean, I didn't become a Rush fan until much later in life. Yeah. Ditto. Like, I think I grew up and I knew Tom Sawyer was a Rush song, and that was about the extent of it for a very, very long time. Right. Is that like a marketing thing? Like I say, I knew about them, but never heard them on the Philly radio stations that played a shit ton of prog back in the day. I have to also ask, is that because they were Canadian and was promotion different coming from Canada in that prog world? So the first album catches some airplay, but remember, that's pretty much straight ahead rock. Fly By Night, the second album in 75, that's where Neil Peart joins. And that's where the prog really starts. By now, they've signed with Mercury Records. And I don't recall a lot of promotion, but I know they toured like madmen. They toured with Kiss, with Aerosmith, with Ted Nugent, with Leonard Skinner. That's really how they built their name up, was touring as a backup band. Mm -hmm. The next album, Caress of Steel, there's a ton of prog in there. The Necromancer, The Fountain of Lemneth. But the record sales are pretty dismal. Mm. That tour, they end up calling the Down the Tubes tour because they thought they were done. Apparently, somehow they got a sneak peek at the record label's expenditures for the coming year, and Rush wasn't even on the list. Oh, jeez. They did give them enough money to go do another album with the warning, you really need to write some hits and get your sales up here. And the band kind of stuck their middle finger out, and they went and did another concept album, 2112. And that album becomes a massive hit. It's their second largest selling album in their catalog, and it's largely from word of mouth. Mm-hmm. To this day, that album is a very famous album in recording circles. Mm -hmm. All kinds of people refer to that. Dream Theater, when they talk about Metropolis 2, Scenes from a Memory, mm -hmm. they call that R2112. Mm -hmm. And people refer to it that way because it does so well, literally almost overnight, that the record label never tells Rush what to do again. They accept what Rush gives them, and when they give it to them, no questions asked. Wow. Right. And if you watch the documentary Beyond the Lighted Stage, they talk about touring during this time. And at the beginning, before 2112's release, they're a backup band and they're playing like Thousand Seat Clubs. And then in a year's time, post 2112 release, they would come back to the same city and be playing as headliners in a 10,000 seat arena. Yeah. In your opinion, how much did their sound change between Caress of Steel and 2112? The sound between Fly By Night, Caress of Steel and 2112 is pretty consistent. What happened? What was different besides a great album cover? I don't think it's the record company at all or promotion. I think it's largely driven entirely by the fan base. So really, they had a vision and, yeah. and they just stuck to it. Yep. And just kept delivering. And just relentless touring. Okay. And I don't have much in the way of critical response, but this is one of those albums that, at least when I was growing up, even in the 90s, if you had those people you looked up to that were like music geeks and like they knew what was up, 2112 was high on their list of albums that they cared about because it was like so respected among music. Yes, I totally agree with that. So that's the first four albums. So this second period, I would call the concept years. 2112 is a massive success. Second best-selling album they have, triple platinum. And it really frees them up to do whatever they want. And they do four albums in this period. This is Farewell to Kings, Hemispheres, Permanent Waves and Moving Pictures. Farewell to Kings and Hemispheres, they are going to continue in the same mode 
of making these longer concept albums. Hemispheres pretty much almost breaks the band, though. You mean the song or the album? Making the album. Okay, okay. Between Cygnus X1, book two, at 18 minutes, and then La Villa Strangiato, which I think is at nine and a half minutes. They had written so much complex material, they had vastly underestimated how much recording and rehearsal time the album was going to take. These are multi-movement pieces with lots of time changes, lots of style changes. Hemispheres is one of my favorite albums. And just shout out to my brother, Dane, who gave me a 40th anniversary reissue for Christmas. So let's give a listen to some clips from this period. So the first two clips are from the first half of this period, part of Cygnus X1, book two from Hemispheres, and La Villa Strangiato, also from Hemispheres. But they decide to change their approach to storytelling through these lengthy concept albums. And it's interesting, I found this quote from Getty Lee. All of that bleeds into our decision to stop the concept album thing. That was a big deal. We started to look at writing as a series of individual concepts, a series of smaller movies, which is what led to moving pictures and certainly to the camera eye. Mm. That's Natural Science from Permanent Waves and Red Barchetta from Moving Pictures. And I think Moving Pictures is probably the peak of the first half of their career. Mm -hmm. Mm. Moving Pictures ends up being one of the best-selling albums of any rock band. Yeah. Almost six million units sold. And it leads to a number of different hits. Tom Sawyer, Limelight is in there. 
they consider these two albums the most fun they ever had in a studio. Really? And their new approach to concept can be seen in a song like Camera Eye from Moving Pictures. And it's really a comparison of the way London feels to the way New York City feels. Interesting. They're not concept albums. They're concept pieces. Right. They might be like a 10, 12, 15-minute song. So do you think that was driven by Neil's lyrics or what they wanted to do musically? Or I think it was driven primarily by how terrible it was to make Hemispheres, how that experience was. Yeah. And they just figured, all right, we got to fix this. No, we don't want to break our necks like that again. So, yeah. yeah. To kind of keep it in this time frame for a little bit, because we've talked about the prog metal scene before, and you've asked, I wonder why Rush didn't really hearken that in earlier. But, you know, some of the things about metal that ultimately led to prog metal, or at least what we know as prog metal today, because prog metal has changed, is metal has this kind of got like a galloping quality to it. It's typically recorded in like D major, E or something like that. The vocals are typically high, like Getty's vocals would be perfectly suited to that. But I don't think they did enough of it. And also the first wave of prog metal was definitely a reaction to like the speed and thrash metal of the 80s, <laughs> which hadn't quite happened yet. So what we know is prog metal today, like a band like um, if I lumped Camelot in there or Seventh Wonder or something like that, I definitely see a connection there to Rush and what they were doing. And I could make that, but not that first wave of prog metal. Hmm. God, if Rush had gotten that kind of support, man, I would love to have heard the albums that they would have produced in that prog metal vein. I agree that they didn't do a lot of that galloping guitar work. And I hadn't really thought about the part about it being a reaction to thrash metal before. I just feel like the power trio setup really precludes that. You're never going to get that kind of guitar work out of a power trio prog act. Mm, yeah. One of the reasons you can get gent guitar in prog metal is because you have other instruments filling in. That's very fair. That metal range. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons. I think if you just look at what Rush is, I mean, it's guitar is unique in you know, the effects that he uses, the lines that he plays and things like that doesn't not really prog metal. I don't think the drumming Neil Peart is not straight ahead right. rock metal drumming. He's very sophisticated in what he plays and Getty's voice. He's the most prog metal of the band and he's not playing an instrument. He lost me on that. So I was just saying the guitar doesn't feel like prog metal to me. Oh, okay. I agree with that. And you know, not all prog metal is, has gent guitar right. and especially not first wave prog metal although if we want to go there i think that rush does have some of that sound it just wasn't enough to like form a movement around it i agree with that mm -hmm. and you know like one of the other kind of hallmarks of prog metal is like double bass on the drum and we just didn't have that in rush that's very true if things had just been slightly different, Rush would have been a prog metal band. But how they were, even as a trio, I think they could have been. Yeah, I just don't. You know, to me, instead of talking about jank guitars and double bass and comparing Rush to what prog metal became, to me, it just boils down to what was going on at the time already versus what Rush was doing. And nobody else was willing to follow that style. My dad used to say, if my aunt had balls, she'd be my uncle. Right. So you're saying if Rush was a prog metal band, then they'd be a prog metal band. If Rush had peaked a little bit later. So you're saying they may have influenced prog metal and like driven it. Yeah. Interesting. 
Well, whatever the reason is, they just don't lead us into prog metal. Anyway, as we leave this time period, a couple of things I want you guys to note. The first is, Geddy Lee's vocals are dropping in range. Those last two clips I played from Permanent Waves and Moving Pictures, his vocals are centered around an F3 on a piano now, so they've dropped by half an octave. And this is a point where Geddy Lee starts playing synthesizers. I'm pretty sure that Getty played Keep the Keys live, too, yeah. right? Like, that wasn't he a did. backing track. No. I know he played Oberheims and Moogs. Mm-hmm. And he played Taurus pedals. That's the he only two He was the Taurus bass pedal guy. That was even before the keyboards. That was... I think he started doing that at Hemispheres. And that's a very key point to this band, because their next six albums, between 82 and 91, are a very different sound for Rush. Quite a bit of production, quite a bit of overdubbing, Getty playing a lot of keyboards, Alex using a lot of effects pedals, mm-hmm. and they also change producers. Their first eight albums are all done with Terry Brown. They do the next one with Terry Brown, but then they start using different producers. Here's an example. I mean, oh, totally. Lots of synth pads in this. Mm-hmm. It's very 80s in vibe. It is very 80s. Well, they filled out the middle. Yeah, exactly. All the synths and the overdubbing has really pulled them away from being a power trio. So those clips were The Weapon from Signals, Marathon from Power Windows, Roll the Bones from the same titled album, and Between the Wheels from Grace Under Pressure. This is where, if you watch that documentary, Beyond the Lighted Stage, They talk to a lot of musicians that we all like, Mm -hmm. people like Mike Portnoy, Trent Reznor, Kirk Hammett, just musicians that Rush has influenced over the years. And they pretty much universally say this is the point where they kind of left the band behind. Mm. And I think the sound changes from 
that kind of harder rock in your face prog to this lighter prog. Mm-hmm. I really racked my brain about what to call this. Wikipedia calls it the synth years. I started yeah. calling it the lighter years, but that almost sounded derogatory to me. So yeah. I don't have a good this name for this. actually sounds like, like first wave prog metal to me. Oh, man. Like there's parts of this I think sounds like a peer of Operation Mindcrime. Certainly it sounds to me like a peer of early conception. Wow. You just really blew my mind. Right. Like I hadn't thought of it that way, but I agree. I think it's it fits in there. Yeah. Maybe it makes sense that Rush wasn't like first wave prog metal, but this era, like it actually kind of surprises me that people didn't put them in that, that grouping. There's three people, but they're not power trio anymore. It's no longer a power trio. Exactly. There's so much overdubbing going on here. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a power trio. And especially comparing it to Mindcrime, because they're about the same time frame, aren't they? They are. Absolutely. Yep. Roll the bones, certainly. Yeah, there's six albums in this period between 82 and 91. Signals, Grace Under Pressure, Power Windows, Hold Your Fire, Presto, and Roll the Bones. And it has to be pointed out, Neil Peart is absolutely one of the best lyricists in all of music, bar none. I do not disagree. And I think the album Signals is a real standout as far as Neil's lyrics. Songs like Subdivisions and The Weapon. Neil's lyrics were influenced by literary giants like Mark Twain, Ernest Hemingway, Ayn Rand, Shakespeare, and covered topics like objectivism, philosophy, faith. They never talked down to their audience, which I always hugely appreciated. Mm-hmm. So Getty Lee, very adequate keyboard player, but not a standout keyboard player. A lot of it is whole notes, half notes. Every now and then a staccato stab or maybe a lick or two. Was he self-taught? Yes, as far as I know. He wasn't really much of a bass player when Rush started either. You know what I mean? Over the first four albums, I think he's a good bass player. Not great, but good. Yeah, figuring it out. But by the time you get to Permanent Waves and Moving Pictures, mm-hmm. I think his bass playing skills really pick up as the albums go on. Yeah, that noodly thing he does in Villaggio Strangiato. Yep. That's a great solo. Yep. So they do these six albums. The next two albums are what I would call Back to Basics, largely due to the influence of Kevin Shirley, the engineer on Counterparts. These two albums are Counterparts in 93 and Test for Echo in 96. And Kevin really insisted they throw the keyboards out, they throw the effects pedals out, and kind of go back to their rock roots. It's because the 80s were over. And I think you really hear the difference in these. Mm Mm-hmm. observation there 
I want to get your music geek response to this. So we've already talked about how Getty's range is coming down. Yeah. From a compression perspective, does that even out the center of the power trio sound? It certainly helps. And it's not as polarizing, so it's not as noticeable. I agree. So compare this. And this. Exactly. Yeah. Those two albums are 21 years apart, I think. And he's dropped a full octave in that time. Yeah, I mean, like the bass sound in Driven there. Yeah. That sounds a bit like Undertow. Getty's bass playing towards the end just gets really incredible. I think I said this when we were having dinner with that one time. I like Test for Echo. I like the more modern Rush sound. I actually don't like Getty's range being so high. Yeah, I think one thing you can easily say is these last five albums, his vocal range drops to something that's definitely more radio friendly. Getty, if you ever hear this, like, I'm not knocking you, dude. It's like, it's just... He's heard it from a thousand people. (laughs) Right? It fits in the range. All 12 of our listeners are going to be very offended. I know. They're going to be adding us on Twitter, and then I'm going to be like, mute, 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 mute. mute, mute. mute. <laughs> I, I like high voice Getty. I do. Okay. I think it's very unique and distinguishing, and he has great control. He does have great control. He does have it's control. a very yeah, strong absolutely. voice. It's just what he is. You know, it's how he sings. I don't dislike it, but I do like his voice in the latter albums much better. So at this point, after Test for Echo Tour, it ends July of 97. Neil Peart's daughter, Selena, dies in a single-car accident driving back to college, August of 97. And within a year of that, his wife, Jackie, also dies of cancer in June of 98. And Neil has consistently called her death a slow suicide by apathy after her daughter died. Oh, got it. And those tragedies hit him so hard that one day he just jumps on his BMW touring motorcycle and takes off. And... People don't know where he is. He packs his bags and just leaves. Kind of fell off the grid. And this is documented in a book called Ghost Rider Travels on the Healing Road that he wrote later. Mm-hmm. He traveled all the way up to the Pan American Highway at the very top of Alaska, mm-hmm. turned around, drove all the way down to the tip of Baja no shit. and Belize, and then turned around and came back into California and was gone for months at a time. And the band just thought, we're on hiatus. We don't know what's happening. Nobody knows if the band's going to keep going or if the band's just done or whatever. Nobody pushes Neil. Neil's going through all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And what's really striking to me is Getty and Alex are like childhood friends, best friends, basically family, grew up together. And Neil's kind of like outsider to some extent. Just he's not part of that family. But the way that they just gave him the space to heal is so not what you would expect from a rock and roll band. And I just think that's commendable. I think it depends on the bands that have staying power. Yeah. Tool is one of those bands, right? Where they just kind of like, they do an album, they do a little bit of a tour, and then those guys scatter to the winds and just kind of go and do other things. And when you're in a band for long enough, you have to treat it like a marriage, right? Yeah. Like you've got to be in it for the long haul. And I think that probably he's going through this and we have to be here and waiting on him when he comes back. Like that was the mature thing to do. Yeah, it just feels so functional. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm kind of coloring that because I hear about 
how Rush is on tour, you know, they're not druggies or... They're professionals. And they have a pretty, you know, laid back lifestyle and did throughout their touring life is my understanding. One thing I will say about Rush that I think speaks to your point is the whole group that surrounds Rush, not just the three of them, but Ray Daniels, their roadies, their touring guys, their lighting guys are extremely loyal people. Hmm. They've been there really from essentially day one. So this isn't a band where you saw people come and go. Once they were set by the second album, everybody stayed with that band. Really? Mm -hmm. That's cool. So like a big family. They are doing something right when that set of tragedies hits Neil. I think it's a really good observation, right? I do too. Yeah. It's just so functional. And then six years after the last album, Neil decides, yeah, I'm ready to pick this up and do it again. Mm -hmm. Vapor Trails is their comeback album. And then their last two albums, Snakes and Arrows and Clockwork Angels. This is a very mature Rush sound. Very guitar focused. Mm-hmm. Little keyboards here and there, a little overdubbing, but not to excess. Getty's bass playing becomes very advanced. Mm-hmm. There are tunes on these last two albums where I think he's carrying the song. Mm-hmm. Here's a clip from the last three albums. I love this era. Yeah, so do I. Those clips were Far Cry from Snakes and Arrows, Vapor Trails from the same title album, and The Anarchist from Clockwork Angels. So Clockwork Angels in 2012 is their last studio album. I would call it a thematic album, not a concept album, but I consider it their best work of the last half of their careers. We'll never know what else they could have done, but I consider it the peak of their creativity. Then in 2015, Rush announced their farewell tour, R40. And this is a good point to talk about the subtle comedy behind Rush shows. Rush has always had comedy in their acts. They began by playing Three Stooges clips on screens behind the band. Eventually, that grows into other artists doing Rush clips. The famous one is South Park Kids doing Little Rush, playing Tom Sawyer. And Rush eventually uses that as an intro to Tom Sawyer. Then Jason Segel and Paul Rudd do a sneaking behind the scenes video for Rush. And eventually the band themselves get into this and they start making their own comedy video clips, making fun of themselves 
there's two or three of these that end up being previews for different shows. One is the Rush Time Machine Tour. Another is where there are gnomes in Clockwork Angels. <laughs> it's with the three of them acting various comedy parts, and you can find these on YouTube, and I'll put a couple of clips into the show notes. Mm-hmm. But there's also just weirdness on stage during a Rush show. During the Presto Tour behind Getty's Bass Rig, there was a stack of coin-operated dryers, the kind you would see in a laundromat, and they were tumbling T-shirts. And at various points during the show, one of the dryers would stop and a roadie would walk out on stage and put quarters in the dryer and get it started again. (laughs) And then at the very end of the show, they would take all the T-shirts out and throw them out into the audience. (laughs) Then during, I want to say it was Test for Echo, they had rotisserie chicken cookers stacked up behind Getty as well. And a roadie would walk out and flip the chicken windows open and baste them. (laughs) And then at the end of the show, they would take all those chickens and donate them to a homeless shelter in the city they were playing. That's cool. So they do the R40 tour. They announce it's their final one. Alex is really suffering from a lot of arthritis in his hands. And Neil says the rigor of practicing and playing drums at that level is just too hard on him now. The tour ends, and then within a year, Neil is diagnosed with a brain tumor, a glioblastoma. And he fights it quietly behind the scenes for a good three years, but eventually dies at the age of 67. So, the end of Rush. It's a very impressive discography. 19 studio albums, Mm -hmm. 24 gold, 9 platinum, 2 multi-platinum, 11 live albums, 2 of those are platinum, and 11 compilation albums, and one of those is platinum. So, to close it, hugely influential band. Kind of hard to nail down if you were a critic, but not if you were a fan. I think it's prog rock. They are something, and there is prog aspects to what they do. They're in a class by themselves. I just... Yeah. Without being too cliche, right? Like, I think some of these flag bearer kind of bands, mm-hmm. they are very singular. Yeah. They are very unique. They don't fit easily into other categories. Yeah. But if I were to call them something because of my background, I'd call them prog rock before I call them prog metal. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, they are very distinctive. Yeah. yeah. They were a fan-fueled band. This isn't a critically-fueled band. This isn't a band that's backed by a ton of money. Mm-hmm. This literally was driven by word of mouth and by fans coming to the shows. Yeah. And now that it's over, their virtuosity is really recognized worldwide. Rush polled at fifth in the best prog acts of all time in the Prog Magazine Reader's Poll in 2015. No kidding. And Neil is consistently considered one of the best drummers of all time. Yeah, every prog drummer that I know of ranks Neil up there really high. And I also think that by the end of it, Getty has become one of the best bass players of all time as well. You know, like as I said earlier, this was the band that when you went to your music geek friends and asked who they recommended, you got this recommendation from them. And I would love to go back and find what was the label doing or not doing to promote them and what were critics really saying. I'd love to read, go back and read some of that um, because I agree with you. I don't think that they were getting support anywhere other than the fans. Right. Mm-hmm. I think it changes at 2112, but then... Well, there's a difference between leaving them alone and promoting them, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very true. Very strong band, very influential, huge fan base, and they have an effect on so many downstream acts that we're still listening to today. That was awesome. You know, I'm definitely one of those newer version of Rush guys, so I like hearing you guys talk about all of the history of Rush. 
Yep. Lee, if you had to pick one or two Rush albums, if you're trying to get into Rush or go Rush adjacent, where would you go with that? I still think Hemispheres is one of the best albums I've done. God bless you, man. Yeah, that's a killer album. And for the modern Rush, I really like the way they ended with Clockwork Angels. That's such a great album. Awesome. Do you have anything in there, Craig? Yeah, my recommendations, if you like instrumental music, which I do, I can't say enough wonderful things about the song La Via Strangiato and the song YYZ. Those are like Desert Island songs. I have listened to each of them a gajillion times and could easily listen to them a gajillion more. Nice. So I really enjoyed that conversation. As we exit tonight, don't forget, folks, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at UP3Show. You can also find us on our brand spanking new website at up3show.com. And you can always contact us via email directly at up3show at gmail.com. We definitely want to hear from all of you about what you're liking, what you're not liking, how we can make the show better, because we want to engage with you guys in the audience. If you'd like to show us some support, the easiest way to do it is to go like and subscribe and all the stuff. You hear everyone say it on social media, but it definitely helps manipulate the algorithm in our favor. Make sure you subscribe on our homepage at up3show.podbean.com for the podcast itself or wherever it is that you get your show. And if you want to support us financially, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com slash up3show. And I was just talking to Lee, and it sounds like he's got some content that's about to go up for the Patreon backers. Yeah, we're going to focus in Season 3 on expanding the Patreon content, beginning with a new extended version of the Dream Theater episode from Season 2, Episode 3. Some additional insight on Dream Theater that regular listeners don't get. Go to Patreon and sign up, and there's plans for additional Patreon content as the season goes on. At one of those private tiers, you'll be able to get some extra content. As always, if you just throw us a couple of nickels, whatever suits your budget, it helps us keep the lights on here, pay for the website, pay for the hosting, whatever it takes. You know what? I will see you guys next month. Bye. Bye. Hey folks, Tony here. If you made it this far, congratulations. You're getting everything you can out of this podcast episode. As a reminder, we're a podcast about commentary and opinion on prog music. We use samples of music to make our point and to teach others. We make no claim of copyright to any of the music featured in our samples and strongly recommend that you support the artists we talk about by buying their albums and merchandise or seeing them live. If you're an artist and you'd like for us to change how we've used your content on the show, please contact us directly so that we can work together.